Um, any of you guys know who uh, John Christ is? Um, he's a comedian. Uh, he, he's a comedian. He's a Christian guy. He does some Christian comedy. He does most of it. It's kind of just out in clubs and stuff. But he's also kind of caught on to the church bubble that many of us live in. If you're kind of a church person, you've been around the church for a long time. And he's been around the church for a long time. So he's kind of figured out some of the church bubble. And he pokes fun at it. Um, he's got a lot of videos that have just gone completely viral. One of them is called, you know, there's that HD, HGTV show, House Hunters. My, my wife and my daughters love this show. It's on, like literally it's on a loop in my house. Um, every time I come home, House Hunters is on. Well, he did something, um, you know, he took the concept and he, he did a viral video called Church Hunters. And there's different episodes of Church Hunters, people looking for a church. So uh, before we get going, check out episode one of Church Hunters. Nick and Molly just moved to the city and can't agree on what they want. They are young and energetic and looking for a new church home. We'll take some personality tests, tour the sites, ask some questions, and based on taste, experience, and location, we'll find them the perfect congregation. I'm Corey Clark, and welcome to Church Hunters. We're so excited to find a church. We just started dating. Um, with the churches we go to now, just not, like for us, just not really doing it for us, you know? Right, I, I go to a satellite campus. I just find it hard to connect emotionally with a video screen, it's just. Okay, you cried during Cake Boss. So like, we've been doing a lot of services online, a lot of podcasts, there are a lot of preachers we do like. Really good, but we want, we want serious yet funny. Yeah, like commanding of the stage yet relatable, you mm -hmm. know? We're more looking for uh, the humor of Andy Stanley with the body of Stephen Furtick. Hey guys, What's happening? I'm Corey. Good to see you, my name's Nick, this hey, is Molly. Molly. Hey guys, welcome to Church Hunters. This is your first church, this is Creekside First Baptist. So while it is traditional, it's still pretty current. Just okay. this year, the pastor started untucking his shirts. Oh, Ooh, wow. that's good. Big deal. He does dress his age though, so don't worry. He's past the Osteen suit phase, but he hasn't gone full Giglio yet. Okay, oh. so there's holes in the knees or no? Well, it's frayed, but no holes. Frayed, oh. no, okay, got it, yeah. perfect. Okay. So hey, let me show you around, okay? Right, let's Come on. do it. I do love this lobby. It's yeah. a great lobby, you know, yeah. it's not too big, not too small, yeah. it should be enough room to catch up, chat with your friends. But here's a great thing. There's a bunch of side exits. So if you need to leave early and catch the game, you can do that. Got it. Yes. Oh. Honestly, right up front, uh, didn't love the name. No, I, First Baptist? Who names a church that anymore? I just... Not these days. We're looking no. for like a Thrive Church, maybe Relevant Church, I don't know, Radiant Church, something. This is the soundboard they use here. Okay. Now remember, it's pretty traditional here. So when Sunday comes around, they turn it way down low. Got it, <laughs> yeah. But the one knock on this church, they still use the childcare numbering system on the screens. Ooh, oh. for the... Yeah. Or as the moms like to call it, the Sanctuary Walk of Shame. Yeah. <laughs> the Sunday morning experience was just... A little too traditional for, for us. us. I mean, the pastor's main point, 157 characters. I can't tweet that. I really think you guys are going to love this place. I like we it. We do. We like Feels it. Great. Yeah. You know, it's diverse, but it's not like too diverse, you know? Scripture heavy sermons? Oh, or, yeah. 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 What about, uh, is it community oriented? Absolutely. Great. Oh, women in ministry? The parking situation, you guys gotta see it. Super rare nowadays. Come with me. There's like a, a maybe for when my parents we'll come into maybe. town yeah. for a church for Christmas, Easter type of church. Like a holiday Holidays. type church. One of the main reasons that I love this church for you guys is that on your personality test, Molly, you scored high in service and hospitality. Oh, babe. And there's wow. a great welcome team you could join. Perfect. Okay. And then Nick, you scored really high in need for accountability. Wow. And the men's groups here are amazing. 
just you're just gonna put that out there. Hey, just God like knows that? your heart. Okay. On the next episode of Church Hunters. I think you're really gonna love this place. They take relevance to a whole new level. This church identifies as inter-denon-denominational. This pastor speaks out of a brand new translation. It's the totally of- admit, first time I, I saw that video, I'm cracking up, right? Because there's an element where he's like, he gets a lot of stuff about us, and he's put out a bunch of them. Most of them are pretty funny and have gone viral. But And so I'm in the church circle, and I see these things, and people send them to me and all the rest, and and so I laugh at them. But then after a while, something about them started to bother me, and I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was until recently. And and I I can kind of, I can can put my finger on it now, and it has to do with the attitude that underlies the humor in it. I don't want to be a killjoy here. I get it. They're funny. But, but walk with me through it. The, the attitude underlying the humor. You see this everywhere, right? He's using this attitude to poke fun at churches. We use it all the time, though, to poke fun at all kinds of things. Now, the, the attitude is nothing new. Um, and we use it on politicians all the time. Um, according to the Internet, Aristotle said this, politicians, they have no leisure because they're always aiming at something beyond political life itself. Power and glory or happiness. Now that's kind of biting. It's not all that funny. And so what we've kind of taken to is uh, taking those, that attitude and, and wrapping it in humor. Um, so, for example, uh, any lawyers in the room, raise your hand if you're a lawyer, right? I know some of you right now are not raising your hand, but... Um, you know, we use this attitude on lawyers all the time. Uh, here's one that I saw the other day. A lawyer with his briefcase can still steal more than 100 men with guns. Eek. And then more recently, this attitude that kind of permeates our culture, it has started to get closer and closer. It used to be people over there that this attitude was something that we would kind of uh, filter them through, but now it's started to come into our home. Um, Raise your hand if you're a parent. If you're a parent, raise your hand. All right, and so there's this out there. Here's kind of an attitude that, Mommy, I'm sorry you're tired. Just kidding. I don't care. Now, we've even embraced this same attitude, because these attitudes need adjusting, uh, towards ourselves. How about this one? Do your kids a favor, don't have any. Ooh. And it's captured maybe most diabolically here now with life rule number 12. Just be yourself. People will not like you anyway. See... You feel that a little bit, don't you? Because at first, it's funny. But then taken to its logical end, it becomes this attitude, which is so prevailing. It becomes insidious and destructive. It is what I believe, really, the religion of our day. One that we have all somehow allowed ourselves to be guided by. It has become, for so many of us, our moral compass The attitude which we now filter all of our circumstances and experiences through. The attitude that I'm talking about, this is going to be painful today because it was hard for me to write it, but the attitude that I'm talking about that needs changing and adjusting is cynicism. So my challenge in this series to each of us uh, has been, for those of you who just want to change, maybe you're not here for the Jesus thing, you just, you know, met a girl in a club Friday night and you're coming because she asked you to come. 
this is good stuff. It's going to help you, you know, be a better person. But for those of you that are trying to follow Jesus and be transformed into his image and likeness, my challenge has been that the best way to do that is to change your attitude. Because we spend most of our time trying to change our circumstances. We can't control them. And we spend a little time trying to change our attitude, which we can control and would help us prevail through our circumstances. It is, as Chuck Swindoll said, life is 10% what happens to us, 90% how we react to it. We have charge over our attitudes, and real change in our lives begins as we change the, the attitudes that prevail. Now, this is a huge biblical idea. I'm not making this up. This isn't some feel-goodism, turn that frown upside down series. The writers of Scripture, the ancient followers of God, the disciples of Jesus, they would tell us, they have told us, worry less about your circumstances and worry more about your attitude. Paul writes most of the New Testament. He's a guy that was actually um, was, was part of the first persecution of the church. But he has this interaction with the risen Christ and it changes him. So much so that he becomes this kind of radical apostle going around um, the known world telling people about who Jesus is. But this can get a guy in trouble. And it does. And he winds up, the Romans aren't real big on this because he's out telling people that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. He winds up arrested, under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, and he writes a book called Philippians. It was a letter, actually, that he wrote to a church in a city called Philippi. He's, his circumstances could not be worse. I mean, he's chained to a guy that's likely imminently going to kill him, and he writes a book that's become known as the Book of Joy. How does one do that? Paul says, you need to change your attitude. In fact, here's what he wrote to the Philippians. He said, you've got to have, you have to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And so we're week three or four into this, right? First we looked at why our attitudes are important, but then we looked at a couple of prevailing attitudes that are deep in us, right? And looked at Jesus' attitude. Jesus has a, an attitude of humility and not pride. He has an attitude of gratitude and not entitlement. But today I want to introduce you to a, a third attitude that almost all of us have developed over time. This is really interesting because it's unlike pride and entitlement, we're born with those things. This attitude we develop on our own through experiences. You were not born, listen, you were not born cynical. But if you live long enough, especially in our culture, you will gravitate towards being a cynic. You'll begin to doubt everything. I want to give you a definition here. I want you to keep it in mind because we're, we're going we're to apply it to the scriptures in a minute. A cynic is a person who looks scornfully. A person who looks scornfully, who's habitually negative, selfishly or cal callously calculating, a negative or pessimistic spirit of scorn towards the virtues or motives of others, marked by or showing contemptuous mockery, scorn and mockery. And at first, the mockery is funny. It is funny. It seems innocent enough. First, it's about politicians and used car salesmen. But then it's about church. And then it's about me. See, cynicism is polarizing and can have a, del a deleterious effect on your soul. Now, Jesus was a lot of things. We could all agree on that, right? I mean, Jesus was loving and he was kind and he was merciful. 
Jesus was direct, confrontational, and he was a stumbling block to many. But one thing Jesus was not. He did not have, nor did he, possess, did he display, an attitude of cynicism. You do not live like he lived. You would not go where he went, do what he did, love like he loved, or suffer like he suffered. He would not have done any of those things if he was cynical about you. Now, he had every right to be. People are chasing him around for miracles, just trying to get healed, trying to use them for their own agendas. But he never got cynical. I mean, he had every right to be. This is crazy if you think about it, right? We talked about it with pride. Jesus is humble, and he has no reason to be. Yet I struggle with pride. Jesus has every right to be cynical about you and I. And what we're going to use him for and try to get from him and use him to build our, 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 our kingdoms. He easily could have looked to the Father and said, listen, we're wasting our time on these people. They're never going to change. They're never going to, you know. But he loved. And he forgave. And he believed. Do you, you get that, right? He's not cynical about you. I'm cynical about myself. As his followers, as those of us who are claiming his name, we should walk, we should have the same attitude as Jesus had. He walked in faith and hope and love, but I get cynical. See, cynicism is not a tool of the kingdom of God. It comes from a different kingdom. Now, we throw it around in this kingdom all the time, right? I mean, we'll talk about it in a second, but ain't nobody more cynical than church people. Oh, I wonder where he is today. I guess the things of God aren't important to him. Right? I mean, we do it all the time. Cynicism isn't from the kingdom of God. If you remember our origin series, right? We talked about our shared DNA, why we are the way we are, where we came from, why things aren't right, what they were meant to be. And if you remember, you and I have an enemy. Most of us kind of feel that, that things aren't working the way they should be working in our world, that there seems to be something uh, coming against us. And in the origin series, we saw what fueled this enemy. In the origin series, we first saw in the garden, in this peace and shalom and beauty of the garden, in comes, a ser here, in comes the enemy in serpent form, and he speaks. And do you know what the enemy's first words were? Cynical. Check this out. He comes up to Eve and says, uh, did God really say that you must not eat from the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Well, Eve says, well, of course we may eat from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat from it or even touch it because if you do, you'll die. You won't die, <laughs> the serpent replied to the woman. And so he lies to her. But, but do you know why she believes the lie? Check this out. Here's what he told her. He appealed to an attitude. He said, God knows. Here's, what, here's why you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you'll be like God. Knowing both good and evil. Eve, don't believe. Don't have faith. Don't have love. Don't trust. No, you see, Eve. God has an ulterior motive. He's holding out on you. He just doesn't want you to be like him. Look behind the curtain, Eve. You're being gamed. You're being lied to. He's not telling you that because he loves you. You're not going to die. He's holding back. He's got another agenda. And cynicism enters the world. 
Now, this is a time-tested tool of the enemy. He's, he's, we breathe it in and breathe it out. Heck, he even tried to use this tool, this attitude on God. Many of you know the story of Job, this incredible follower of God, this lover of God, that, that the enemy would love nothing more than to sift and destroy. And so he comes to God and he appeals to an attitude that God does not have. Check it out. He says, yes, God, but Job has good reason to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But God, reach out and take away everything he has, and he'll surely curse you to your face. Hey, God, Job doesn't really love you. He's got an agenda. His motive isn't pure. He's just trying to get from you. Don't buy it, God. He's out for himself. You see, faith and hope and love are the calling cards of the kingdom of God, but cynicism and doubt are the hallmarks of a different kingdom. Now, there are a lot of Psalms. Some of you know there's 150 of them. And there's 2,526 verses in the Psalms. But do you know, Psalm 1 Verse 1 addresses the attitude that needs adjustment. When the psalmist wrote, Blessed is the one, blessed are you, O Lord our God. Here we go, right? The 18. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. As the King James Version says, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Blessed are those who aren't cynical. Now, this is a fundamental problem, and here's why. Because, and you probably never thought about it this way, I hadn't, cynicism is sin. It is missing the mark. This same Paul, who had every right to be cynical, right? I mean, he's been beaten, mocked, he's lost everything, he's chained up. Based on his circumstances, he should have been cynical. But he writes to the church in Rome, whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. And guys, cynicism is an attitude where faith cannot exist. Its foundation, the foundation of cynicism is unbelief. And cynicism's message is don't believe. One writer said this, we only feel cynical when we've sold out to something anti-gospel. Or when we speak cynically, we've been, listen, this is so good. When we speak cynically, we've been hoodwinked by the enemy to propagate his venom. That's no way for a Christian to live. And this is his conclusion. In our society, one of the clearest marks that would make us look different and holy would be a refusal to be cynical. See, now you were not born this way. It's an acquired attitude. At the heart of cynicism is a form of pride, of self-righteousness, in that the cynic always knows a better way. If the cynic were in charge, we wouldn't be where we are today. And the cynic criticizes and becomes bitter in their heart. But that's not the way you were born. John Ortberg, I think, puts his finger on it well. He says, scratch the surface of any cynic and you will find a wounded idealist underneath. Let me repeat that because that's pretty good. Scratch the heart, or the surface, excuse me, scratch the surface of any cynic, you'll find a wounded idealist underneath. Because of previous pain or disappointment, cynics make their conclusions about life before questions have even been asked. 
And that means that beyond just seeing what's wrong with the world, cynics lack the courage to do anything about it. They just point it out. The dynamic beneath cynicism is a fear of accepting responsibility. You see, you were created to live lives of faith and hope and love, but we become cynics over time because of pain, crushed dreams, broken promises, unforeseen betrayals. This has been studied. Yale University actually did a study on this. And it can be noted, as young as age seven, children begin responding cynically to suspect statements. UC Irvine did the same thing. They contend that the first seeds of cynicism are planted when people first put in an effort to achieve a goal, like snagging a promotion at work or raising a self-sufficient child, and then their hopes get dashed. And so, like a cancer, cynicism grows, and it becomes a filter through which we interpret all of life's circumstances. Guys, this is a problem. Paul speaks of spiritual gifts given to followers of Jesus. He says there'll be things like prophecy, there'll be things like knowledge, but he says at the end, three things will remain, faith, hope, and love. They're the hallmarks of the kingdom. Listen to me now. Cynicism destroys faith, hope, and love. You can't walk Or experience, you can't experience love, faith, or have hope steeped in cynicism. It kills hope. When we have hope, we have this deep-seated belief in the possibilities of tomorrow. For believers, we are told that all things are possible. And so, as a result, we keep walking, keep fighting, keep working. Cynicism, you know what cynicism births? Apathy. Cynicism is paralyzing. Because every time, I mean, you, every time you have uttered the word, why bother? What's it matter? Cynicism was at its root. Cynics never change anything. They don't change the world. They just lament it. I mean, they look smart because they're proved right a lot. I get that. I mean, cynics take no risk because to take a risk, it's just going to go unrewarded. I mean, why would I care about my job if all the company cares about is the bottom line? Why would I enter the political fray? Why would I vote if all the politicians care about is getting reelected? Why would I go back to school if the whole educational system is corrupt? Why would I get married if it's only going to end up in divorce? Why would I go to church if all they want is my money? You, you, do you see what this does? I mean, it just tears apart. It it unwinds faith and hope and love. Cynics, I mean, they die internally. It destroys faith. Primary way you and I can interact with God, okay? As believers and followers of Jesus, we're given a great gift that most other faiths don't really buy, but but we believe in a God who wants to interact with us personally, that desires a relationship with you. And the way that that interaction goes on is through prayer. God desires this constant community with his people. The scriptures say, if you would abide in me, I'll abide in you. My life and love and power will flow through you. I'll give you a new life. And do you know what cynicism says? Why bother? Nothing's going to change. I mean, we've all been there, right? We've all prayed for things that haven't happened. 
Sometimes you start to get to the point where you start just becoming so cynical about prayer and our relationship with God. There's an element of, well, what? I mean, remember that job pray, you prayed for that you didn't get? He's not listening. Remember you prayed for that guy you met, you gave him a number, you prayed, and he didn't call. Say, God doesn't care about you. Remember you prayed for healing, you gathered the elders, and, and the healing didn't come. God's not interested. But that's cynicism. Those are lies. There's nothing further from the truth. Trusting in God uh, permits us to see unanswered prayer as God's will, in that sense he loves us and is for us, that even though we're not getting what we wanted or where we want to be, this is where he has us for now, and it's okay because he's for me. It's best for me. So we trust and walk, but cynicism says walk away. It destroys faith in God, but also in humanity because cynicism, this one really is so true, cynicism kills love. I mean, if all we ever do is question each other's motives, how can we ever enjoy one another? Let alone love one another. I sat with a friend yesterday at my daughter's track meet and he asked me what I was talking about today. I said, cynicism. And the two of us just got going on how cynical we each were and how cynicism is just destroying everything. We just started unwinding it because it's unwinding us. Guys, let me be honest with you, right? Cynicism is the reason it has gotten to the point where we can't talk to each other anymore. Because we are so cynical about each other. I mean, you see it in all the political stuff on social media, right? I, I have a decent amount of friends on social media because I'm an upfront guy, right? And so I, I literally watch folks unfriend each other. I mean, if you're for the tax cut that went through, right? Well, if you're for it, that's because you're rich and only out for yourself. That's your motive. That's why you're for it. I mean, if you're against the tax cut, you're just lazy and want handouts. I wouldn't even bring up the president's name because we can't listen to each other. All we can do is impugn each other's motive. Everybody's got an ulterior motive. And you know what we do when we do this, church? We sit in the seat of the scoffer and the place of the mocker. It's bad enough when it happens out there, but when it happens in here, I mean, this John Chris stuff, it's funny. I get it, right? But cynicism is, is easy humor. Watch every late-night comedian. Most of, the, most of it is cynical. It's easy. It's picking low-hanging fruit, but it destroys faith and hope and love. I mean, you know, he went on about the, the pastor wearing, wearing ripped jeans, and it wasn't because that's what he was comfortable in. It was because that's how he was trying to look cool or reach, you know, build his church. He went on about changing the name. Who would name it First Baptist? And, and their, their only ch name changed. See, at the root is something that destroys faith and hope and love and trust, and we laugh at it. But over time, it has an impact. I mean, a church all the time, we, 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 we impute ulterior motives, bad motives to everything. Well, I know why he's using that version of Scripture. Did you see what they put in the foyer? I know why they did that. It destroys churches. It destroys homes. It destroys marriages. I can't tell you, I do a lot of marriage counseling, 
I can't tell you how much of it is because at its core that, that, that within marriages over time because of pain, because of broken promises, over time this cynicism builds up, this disbelief in each other. It builds to a point where it is impossible anymore to love. Nothing anymore can be believed or taken at face value. Everything is driven by some, some agenda or motive. Cynicism, man. It's like it, it eats us up and spits us out and we're left with nothing, just sitting there, bitter. So what do we do? Because I, I've been trying to give you actual ways to work through this in this series. How do we replace cynicism with faith and hope and love? The first thing that you have to do, these are actual things, I want you to do them because some of them are going to be fun and some of them are going to be very painful. But I do think it will help you overcome cynicism and live and believe again. Cynicism does not allow you to live because it doesn't allow you to have faith, hope, or love. First thing you need to do is understand what a huge problem this is. So I want to introduce you to a little game we had at our house. It's called um, the cynicism jar. And so we actually did this. Um, this is, you can make one of these yourself. It's not all that difficult, right? I'm not giving you anything that you can't do yourself. Go home, you make yourself a little cynicism jar. When we did it, we put it under the TV because that's where dad spends a lot of his time. And so we stuck the cynicism jar. We had this little cup in there. Courtney, uh, I was asking, talking about it last night. I said, remember when we played that game? She said, yeah, you stopped it because you were going broke, um, <laughs> which is true, um, actually. And, uh, and so what happened is I started to realize I was really cynical. Um, and it's not good because I start looking for everybody's ulterior motives, you know. I mean, just. And so then I started realizing I was passing it on to my kids. They were becoming cynical. I'm like, well, that's really an ugly attitude. You got it from me, so I got to break it. So here's the deal. We gave each other permission to call each other out on being cynical. If your relationship is not good, this is not a good game for you to play, okay? <laughs> so let's start there. If you've got a bad relationship, we'll move, move on to step two in this talk. But if you can stand each other, right, and you will permit each other to speak into to each other's lives, you, what you would do is, every time you said something cynical, somebody in the family could call out and go, cynical, because you started to learn. Boy, this is really a problem for me. In fact, it was a problem for me. I remember John was getting ready to go off to work. He was going to be a stock trader, a derivatives trader in Manhattan at, a, at a, a big bank. And I sat him down on the couch and I said, John, I said, let me explain this before you go. They're going to tell you that they're, 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 they're interested in you and your career. They're not interested in anything but money. In fact, John, you've got to watch out for yourself because they're just going to use you and blah, 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 and profit, and all the money's going to go to the bottom line. And, and Courtney and Caroline were around, and you know, I said, well, I should have a, probably have a good father-daughter talk with them. Girls, let me tell you something about boys. <laughs> yeah, they only want one thing. There's not a good one. They, all of them have their own agenda. Stay away from them, Right? And I mean, as you go on, you'll start, this adds up quick. You know, the phone rings, it's a relative that never calls. I wonder what they want. <laughs> right, walk in, see the kid, uh, do, one of the kids unloading the dishwasher. What do you want? <laughs> right, watch the news, you know, I mean, everything. There's agendas everywhere. I'm, I'm filling this thing up, man. If you want, if you want to go on a vacation, Start this, right? I mean, by the end of the week, you might have a small vacation fund. 
Um, if you really want to supercharge your cynical bucket and like maybe get a vacation home, here's what I would do. I would take my cynical jar, sit it next to my computer, and go on social media, right? And, and then you could read your friends' posts about their kids and their lives and their politics. You'll be rich in no time. This is a huge problem. And it's not just the things we express, okay? There are things that we don't express, but our brains are soaked in cynicism, imputing motives that never existed. And I learned a painful, actually physically painful lesson about this this morning. We got in the car to come here. Me and the two girls were coming early. Joan was going to come a little bit later. And so we hopped in the car. It was going to be a good time. We were going to drive to church together. I pushed the button to start the car, and it's hard to start because my keys weren't in it. And my keys weren't in it because that unthinking person I married put them in her purse and took them in the house. <laughs> Never mind that she was out food shopping for the family with the car. She, right, her motive, what was she thinking? She knows i got to get up early. Why wouldn't she just put them back? So, well, no, hold on. It gets worse. So... Courtney gets frustrated. She immediately goes, oh, I'm out of here. I'm taking my own car. So she leaves. You should put a dollar in too, right? And then, so I ran up the stairs. Now I can't find my keys anywhere. I don't know where my purse is. And I'm trying to find it. I run up the stairs. I'm running late as I always am. And as I get to the top of the stairs, my foot catches the top of the stairs. I fall head first into the wall. I imputed motive there. That's got to be worth at least a 10, right on that spot about what this woman had done. <laughs> Cynicism jars, step one. You will quickly learn it is a huge, huge issue that is paralyzing you. Step two, you got to begin to move forward in what Jesus described to reacquire what he would describe as a childlike faith. If you want to live again, if you want to dream again, you got to start believing again in God first and then in one another, giving others the benefit of the doubt. Now, I'm not just talking about just silly, like, uh, just believe everything kind of mindset. That wasn't the attitude of Jesus. When my son was getting ready to go out into the world, I pulled him in. I said, hey, be careful out there because they're all going to try to take advantage of you. Jesus pulled his disciples in when he was about to send them out, and he gave them less cynical advice. He says, look, I'm sending you out like sheep, sheep among wolves. Here's what I need you to be, as shrewd as snakes, but as innocent as doves. Because the overwhelming temptation when we're faced with any kind of evil is to become a wolf, cynical, to lose your sheep-like spirit. But Jesus says, no, no, don't do that. Be wary, but be warm. Be like a dove and a serpent. A childlike faith doesn't mean naive optimism. Jesus calls us to be wary, but to also be more confident in God, to combine a robust trust in the good shepherd with a vigilance about evil that exists in our own hearts and in others. A childlike faith and dependence happens when you begin to trust that God is for you. He's with you. He's acting on your behalf. That what he has for you is better. A childlike faith walks by faith and not sight. Cynicism will never let you do that. See, a childlike faith allows you to hope again in God and in one another. It allows you to stop imputing bad motives and searching for ulterior ones. 
hope, have faith, love again. Your innocence has been stolen by cynicism. Pray like you believe it matters, because it does. Don't let cynicism destroy your faith, rob your future. It's a couple more and I'll be done. Like breaking waves on the shore, gratitude erodes cynical nature. We talked about it last week. Pray these 18 benedictions. Come up with things that you can thank God for every day. Because when you start to realize how blessed you are, your heart fills up to the point where there is little room to be cynical about everything. Now, cynicism is born out of a protective desire, right? I don't want to become cynical because this way I'm not going to get hurt. So another way to, to fight cynicism is to forgive to forgive, to be a quick forgiver, your spouse, your boss, your church. Here's how you do this. This is a physical exercise, okay? You begin to purposely take every cynical thought captive, every time you put a dollar in, you take a thought captive, and you switch the motive. You stop impugning bad motive, and you start kind of imputing a good motive. It's a discipline. You did not wash my car because you want something. You did it because you love me. Now, I have four kids. I know that's probably not true. But it's a, pra- see, it's, it's a practice. It's a practice. I, you, literally, you'll start to do this all day. It will change the way you feel. Every time you feel cynical about anything you see, anything you read, just start to go, wait a minute. I'm going to, I'm going to start to impute a good motivation to that. Right? He didn't vote that way because of some lobbyist. That's his heartfelt opinion. She didn't get that promotion because the boss has the hots for her. She's really good at her job. My husband is not watching the TV to avoid me. He really likes the Mets, and the TV helps him relax. Joan's working on this one right now. (laughs) Do you see how powerful this is? It really can change. I'm telling you, I'm not blowing smoke at you. This can change things. Husbands and wives especially, this is a game changer for your family, the way you relate to one another, the way you deal with your children. Listen, I'm going to pound the thing is to say, stop imputing bad motives to your spouse. They come naturally. When you fall headfirst into a wall, trust me that, shoot. They come really naturally. But you could take these thoughts captive. Cynicism destroys relationships and love by imputing bad motive. What did Paul say about love? Anybody remember what he said about love? Here's what he said. He says, see, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes. You see, this is the, love is the opposite of cynicism. It bears all things, believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. You can't be cynical and love. And you can't love and be a cynic. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, summed it up this way. He said, listen, the end of things is near. Be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. A love which believes again and hopes again, it covers a multitude of sins, including my own cynicism. And finally, this is a real practice I'll give you to do too. It's easy and it's effective. Paul is writing this letter to this church in Philippi. He's chained to a Roman guard. His circumstances are bad. He's working on his attitude. 
And, 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 and he, he says, I'm excited, I'm joyful. You know why? Because these circumstances aren't good, but people are coming to know Christ as a result of these circumstances. But he had heard that in the city of Philippi, people were actually out there preaching Christ for their own motive, their own gain, to line their own pockets, to make Paul look bad. Paul hears about this, and here's what he writes. He goes, look, it's true that some people preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, and now others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am here uh, for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they could stir up trouble for me while I'm in change. But what does it matter? What does it matter? If I'm sitting there tied to a Roman guard, I'll give you 20 pages of why it matters. But Paul doesn't, he's not look. he doesn't care about the motive. He's not trying to undress somebody about their motive. This is what he said. He goes, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motive or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. He goes, I, this is crazy. He goes, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the motive was. I'm going to look at the big picture. I'm not going to get caught up in always impugning motive. His mind was on something other than worrying about people's motives and their impact on him. Later on, when he's concluding this letter to the Philippians, he goes, you want to know the secret to doing that? Here's how you do it. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true and noble, right and pure, lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Whatever you've learned or you've received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. As as the band comes up, you can do this. Every day the world is getting you to focus on everything that's not true and noble and pure and lovely. I mean, it's just filling your heads with reasons to be more cynical. Paul says, stop doing it. Focus on all of the things that are beautiful or excellent or praiseworthy. I mean, this morning, right, my knee was still aching in the car, and I started thinking, that woman went out and bought all of those groceries for me last night. And then I sat on the couch watching the Mets while she bought them in. It kills cynicism. Go find the beautiful stories, the stories of love and grace, stories of reconciliation and forgiveness. Focus on them. Take five minutes. Do your 18 benedictions and then focus on something. Your house, your wife, your kids, your job. I'll close with a quote. I want you to remember this because it sums it all up. If you know Tony Campolo, he's one of the great preachers of all time. He's a great storyteller. I said, man, Tony's going to have a great story on cynicism and hope. So I'm Googling it. And I can't find anything. It's kind of frustrating. But then I came across, because he's so good, I came across this, this summary statement. Here's what he said. He goes, you're as young as your dreams, and you're as old as your cynicism. Church, be young again. Let's pray. Father, help us to hope again, to believe again, to have faith again in each other, in you. Father, help us to love again, to live again, to be set free from this sin of cynicism, which just tells us not to believe or buy anything. Lord, I... Your word says that if we could push back the curtain of cynicism, if we could take out the filter of cynicism, if we could get off the seat of the mocker, that the, at the end, three things, would, three things would remain. Faith and hope and love. But the greatest of these is love.